0: everybody. Welcome to another episode of Thrive. Today we have one of my spiritual mentors, Stomaji, also known as Stephen Parker, Saidi, a psychologist living in, I, I don't know, I guess all over the world, but most of the time, I guess your headquarters would be in Minneapolis. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, certainly for the last year.
0: Oh yeah, I bet during the pandemic you probably didn't get a chance to travel around much. Not at all. Yeah. How has it? How was it uh, being in Minneapolis during the whole pandemic, knowing that um, it's a, it sounds like a very different type of life compared to what you did before, where you were traveling, giving lectures, and teaching people meditation.
1: Definitely. Um... I retired from my full-time psychotherapy practice at the end of January, 2017. And so when I'm home, I'm just a retired guy. (laughs) And, you know, my job is basically to learn to be a good spouse and make sure I get dinner on the table at six o'clock every night. Um, And I pursue my, my retirement, um, second career has been to gradually, uh, become more of a neuroscientist. Um, And I have been working with a consortium of international neuroscience researchers into meditation and consciousness from 17 or 18 countries um, as part of a research seminar that's coordinated through the university, Sapienza University in Rome. So gradually I'm sort of schooling myself in, uh, in neuroscience and neuroscience research strategies. I'm still really a beginner uh, on the technical side of it and my primary interest is mostly on the theoretical and methodological side um, and so that's that's really taken up uh, a lot of my time but actually the whole atmosphere of living at home here in Minneapolis uh, over the last year has been quite surreal I mean the um, effects of the pandemic notwithstanding you know the Suspension of any real sense of time and uh, the sort of interesting uh, emotional side effects of, of living in isolation so much um, from friends and family. Uh, that's been interesting enough to watch. But then on top of all of that, George Floyd was killed 10 blocks from my house. Oh, my God. And uh, there were a couple of nights in late May last year when my neighborhood was completely on fire. Wow. And there was a degree of traumatization that came with that, even though, even though people didn't really bother the residential streets, I live very close to a major commercial street. And uh, many, many businesses in that area were burned including a gas station 150 meters from my back door, which could oh, easily have blown us all to bits at any moment. And so it was, it was quite an experience. And it's also been interesting as a longtime activist about social justice issues going all the way back into the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War to watch the conversation on racism proceed. And on what society's responses to it should be, um, and I'm not—I'm not very happy with the conversation the way it's going. Um, on a number of different uh, fronts, um, you know, I think the governmental responses in terms of how to work on police reform have been too minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, the responses made by people who um, put themselves across as progressives have been unbelievably naive and clueless. Um, you know, our city council in Minneapolis are the ones basically who founded, who created this phrase, defund the police. Mm-hmm. And in as a result of going to uh, uh, a rally in the days after Floyd was killed, and... Uh, They didn't really have an idea what they were going to do at the time and they really still don't have not been consulting with other cities that have had some success with reforming their policing um and their only response to questions about how are you going to do this is well we're going to have a dialogue with the community well you know as i'm sitting here in the middle of the neighborhood as stores are being looted and people are running around with automatic weapons i don't care about dialogue with the community. I mean, I really was felt profoundly unsafe for about three hours. I mean, my my baseline sense of uh, safety in the world, the sort of existential frame of safety that allows you psychically to sort of prevent post-traumatic stress disorder was fractured. Um, And, uh, you know, we need to have policing there because, you know, there still are people running around who um, are not just experiencing a hard time, let's say, you know, who really get a thrill out of hurting people. And, uh, and w- we have to take that into account in, in all of these processes. So it's been a, it's been a really interesting thing to watch. Um, I moved into this neighborhood. I live in, in the uh, central neighborhood of South Minneapolis years ago because I grew up in the suburbs and as a therapist, I'm totally well aware of all of the things that went on in the suburbs behind closed doors. It was all secret. It was no less chaotic and weird than it is in the center of the city, Mm -hmm. but it was hidden away where nobody could see it. And it was all sort of plastered over with this wonderful veneer of normalcy. But uh, um, oh, what was his name? The Mexican, the psycholo- American psychologist who lived in Mexico, It was Jerome Frank, who wrote The Pathology of Normalcy in the 1960s, all veneered over with this pathology of normalcy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I said, I'm going to live in the city or I'm going to live in the wilderness, <laughs> nowhere in between. <laughs> so I decided to move to the city thinking, naively, as it turns out, that you know, as we sort of encounter each other day to day in running our lives, that I would get to know people who are very different from me. And that doesn't happen. Hmm. Even in the city, it doesn't happen that much. Uh, if you look at uh, churches, for example, they're either black or white. You can count on, on the fingers of two hands the number of, of church congregations in the United States that manage to really mix African-American and white people. Because the church has very different functions in both communities. Um, so I think this question of sort of how we get together and get to know each other is a much deeper one than just a political contemplation of what to do about racism. Um, it's I think, I think frankly as a neuroscientist it goes back to the way in which our um, interpersonal neurobiology Puts us in a position to be choosing, and this is on an evolutionary scale. I'm not talking about something that happens in one lifetime. Mm-hmm. Choose an in-group and an out-group. Choose the people who are the friends and family who can nurture our vulnerable children during their extraordinarily long childhood, uh, you know, during which time they're incredibly vulnerable to death. Um, and how we define the enemies that we need to defend against. And I think that's part of what we're up against here. It's not just about the phenomenon of racism, it's also our biological selection of who is us and who is not us. And that sort of thing is not going to change slowly, quickly. Um, You know, those kinds of processes that are woven into our neurobiology change are are as much homeostatic as any biological system. They really work to remain as stable as possible and they change kind of grudgingly, you know, a lot of effort. And that's why it takes so long. It's not about people being lazy or ignorant, although those things also happen. It, It really is also about how slowly our nervous system allows it to soak in that these people are okay. You know, so I think and, and it's hardest with African-American people because their difference from white people is so obvious as a result of color. You see the same, thing's happening, same thing happens in India. There's a big, uh, and Indians don't like it when I talk about this, but, you know, there's a big thing in India about skin color. And there is a lot of discrimination that happens on the basis of whether one's skin is dark or light. And, you know, the, the trade in skin whiteners is, still very active in india so i mean this isn't something that's just an american problem or just a european problem uh it's a problem just about everywhere i mean even in africa skin color becomes a big deal um and a lot of sort of decisions about caste and class get made on the basis of those visual judgments on who is us and who's not us so um I just want people to pay attention to the depth of what's going on and to have a little compassion for each other about how long it takes these processes of change to happen and that's i mean that's coming from somebody who was always attracted to the most different person in the room even as a kid you know when i first got into school in the american midwest in south dakota um where Obviously, white people are a vast majority. Um, I was drawn to the Indian, the American Indian kid and the black kid in the class to play with, and I brought them home to play with me, and (laughs) white neighbors were questioning my parents about what's wrong with that boy. Um, So, I mean, even for someone who's inclined to be attracted to people who are different, it still takes a long time. And that's really frustrating, and I think a lot of people find it um, disillusioning and disheartening. But I think adding in this piece about the the neuros- neuroscientific basis for how for a part of how we make these decisions allows us a little room to take some time to get used to each other. Uh, well, let's, that's probably way into the weeds for the beginning of an interview, but.
0: Well, I, I find myself fascinated with what you were talking about. Um, I didn't realize how close you were to all the dangers that occurred there. I didn't, I don't, I, I saw it on TV. I saw it multiple times and, and, and sometimes all these things are so politicized that it's hard to get yeah. a good sense of what's actually going on and what is the right decision to make because even normal nuanced discussion about the problem becomes so politicized that it's hard to find a way to make the immediate danger situations work. And then let's not even talk about what medium-term or long-term ways of managing AIDS. And then, as you were talking about the the, the more let us say, quote unquote simplified or natural or way to uh, to address this issue, where uh, basically through our childhood, what we consider in group and out group, and I, I say quote unquote simplified because it's so complex, right? Like we we can have, and 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 it has happened through generations and hundreds of years ago, where you would have uh, where. White people would have Black people uh, taking care of their children uh, for, for throughout their childhood. And still, that doesn't mean it's in-group, right? It's, do- it's not just the fact that you are around all potential different types. And I say, quote, unquote, different type, really, because it's just uh, whatever it is that we use our mind to differentiate, whether it is race or socioeconomic status of ways of behavior politically or ways of, uh eating habits etc yeah. our, our mind is naturally inclined to to separate and discriminate and or or or, or discern between one thing and the other so that we can walk through the world and then we attach emotions of hierarchy to them that don't really necessarily make sense and and yeah i see what you're saying and and i find myself okay how do i for myself, promote this in the best way possible.
1: Well, and I think the way that we promote it in the best way possible is to (laughs) shut up and listen most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, I don't mean that just facetiously because the thing that helps you to change your nervous system in the fastest and most efficient way is mindful awareness starting from awareness of your breath. And you know, that stimulates the medial prefrontal cortex which is responsible for integrating everything else. So that's how those habitual patterns gradually end up getting changed in the most efficient way possible. Um, And we know from the research on consciousness that part of what happens if you make that a practice in your life over the long-term is that you develop um, a capacity for open-heartedness uh compassion and understanding the inner experience of another over time that are i mean in addition to be, in addition to being wonderful qualities on their face are also really the genuine signs of spiritual progress in people um and you know nothing taught me more about this than my career as a psychotherapist it was one period during my doctoral studies when I was so busy that I just didn't have time for a formal, much time for a formal sitting practice of meditation. So I decided to take my mantra meditation into my work day and to practice using the mantra that I use for my meditation in between sentences as I talk to people. Mm. Now, this was a really interesting experiment, more, more than I ever thought it could be. Because in the process of doing that, I became so much more quiet. I said much less to my clients. And when I asked them about that later, they all of them said, well, I, I kind of liked it better when you didn't talk so much. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great lesson in the importance of listening with an open heart and with an aware mind in the most present way possible. Um, It helps you keep your balance. It helps you to monitor the flow of thoughts and feelings that are coming through your mind and that constitute the motivation for your behavior. So you have an opportunity observing those to be able to choose what you're going to do, to choose your action. I I I lost your uh, your volume.
0: Uh, I don't know if you don't look muted, but, but I'm not hearing what you're saying. Now I'm hearing
1: you. Okay. Um, what I was saying is that um, is that uh, I don't know, kind of got sidetracked there for a moment. As you as you keep this sort of open-hearted attitude, as you're listening to people. Um, it keeps, you, it keeps you centered and focused, and it allows you to observe the flow of thoughts and feelings in your mind so that you have an opportunity to choose your response to them, to choose your behavior. You know, rather than simply react, um, you can actually act in, an, in a positive way in the situation, which may be different from what your emotions are telling you. You know. When anger arises in your mind, you have a chance to ask, "Okay, I'm angry. Is is this going to be skillful in the situation? Is this going to help in some way? Is raising the volume going to actually help people to hear me? And most of the time, the answer is no. Um, It gives you the chance to do something more effective and at the same time, generally, more loving and more peaceful. and so the cultivation of that kind of mindfulness, I think, is terribly important. I was listening to, to a very interesting interview this morning with a woman who's just written a book on power and how much women misunderstand what power means. And what uh, it's one of the first uh, female females discussing power that doesn't just go at the idea of power from a masculine perspective. And this woman trained as a Taoist nun, which is lovely. She also trained as a dominatrix. Oh, wow. She also gained her... Well, she earned the money and she gained the preliminaries for entering into a monastic life in Taoism as a dominatrix in New York City, (laughs) which gave her a whole different idea of what power is. And it really... The thing that she said more than anything else is that focused attention creates power in an interaction with people. And, you know, Swami Veda always used to say, the calmest person in the room is in control, no matter what's happening. And as I watch carefully the interactions between people, I see the, I see the truth of it. Um, the person who can, and same thing for martial arts, Keeping your center and your ability to observe very acutely what's going on around you and with the other person you're engaged with is what allows you eventually the intuition to know what somebody is going to do before they do it. In other words, it, in, in yoga, we would say it turns on your buddhi, your ability to see and your ability to sense in a finer way to have an intuition that goes beyond just the information you're getting from your senses. Um, and I think that's that's a real antidote to a lot of the problems that we're having these days. It's just cultivating that sense of mindful awareness.
0: I know that mindful awareness has definitely helped me in my life to the degree of a lot of what you're saying um, to listen more and and i know that uh, your your name is stoma but also i feel like I, i talk a lot a lot of the time and and the more i meditate the more that gets reduced to a degree that it's significant that it's noticeable around other people and that it's noticeable to me so that i don't react to my emotions i don't react to the external events and i Act with intention towards a specific goal that tends to be in, in what I believe benefit to me and and the people around me. A lot of the time, led by intuition. A lot of the time, not. Uh, and a never-ending um, spiritual practice, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. When, you know, in a way, I think that's almost a definition of profession is to be able to use a field of knowledge with that kind of mindful awareness and intuition. I look back into all of these thoughts about how to reform policing. And you know, one of the things that gets under my skin is the latitude that's given to police to escape consequences based on being in fear of their lives. And I, I don't know, to some people this may seem unnecessarily harsh, but what is a law enforcement professional doing being in, in fear for their life? Have have they not gotten some skills to manage their own fear internally? Well, the answer is generally no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they manage their fear with external things, with weapons and sticks and armor and all this crap that the military keeps giving police forces. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, the real important protection that they have for everybody in the interaction that police has with the public is their ability to keep their balance emotionally in a situation. That's the really important part. And that's the part that makes law enforcement a profession, I think, is the ability to deal with your fear and um, just like in psychotherapy, an ability to deal with hearing very difficult stuff about people's lives is a preparation for really being able to listen in a way that's useful to people as you learn to be a psychotherapist. Um, and that point seems to be entirely missed in this whole discussion that we're having in society these days. I don't, I don't agree that uh, law enforcement people should have this latitude to get off from episodes of misbehavior based on i was afraid for my life
0: i agree i think it's kind of uh, i I don't know if i'm going to do a a just analogy but uh, uh, physicians are held to a very rigorous standard Mm -hmm. when taking care of the life of others and being afraid of doing a very difficult procedure or uh, or n- n- right. help, it's it, it just, it just not part of the question. You need to do the best you can. And, and, we, and the, the tools to make that happen may or may not be given, but this is what needs to happen. And, and that causes a lot of anxiety. And uh, uh, other times it, it helps people look for strategies in which how to cope with these standards as well as to do a good job and for me, the answer has been mindfulness, uh, amongst other things, uh, being thoughtful about a lot of what I do. I was just prior to talking with you, I was listening to a conversation regarding a uh, an interview with a journalist from the Washington Post, talking a lot about the uh, these concentration camps going on in China, and and. And the whole geopolitical infrastructure, and how m- m- several corporations are that sell products here are kind of trapped there uh, b- uh, financially, in order or feel trapped financially in order to maintain prices, and at the same time they have to, to subsequently. Um, Be a buffer between different types of governments, which has led me to to think for myself. Okay, how do I, how can I be at peace, of so that so that my financial uh, resources are not funneled in a way that causes harm, and 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 it's leading me to really question what it is that I buy and just being more mindful, even deeper to 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 a degree, not only to what I eat but for where is this project made from? What company is it making it? And what are the influences through which this company is acting on, etc.?
1: And that's, you know, that's going to be China's entry into world trade. And, you know, once again, the West has been very naive about dealing with China, assuming that opening trade with China was going to somehow democratize them you know, quite the opposite. They're managing to de-democratize the rest of the world. <laughs> and and they're so good at doing this. I mean, they get countries hooked into all of these, you know, financial agreements that, that can sooner or later come to grief um, or, you know, trying to take over the whole flow of world trade through their Belt and Road Initiative. Um, it's, uh, they're making a, a very, they're doing a very skillful job of, of sort of, putting the autocratic method out there as, a, as an alter- alternative governance to people. And unfortunately, people are a little too inclined to listen to it at this point.
0: Yeah, it's scary. Um, anyway, um, this has been interesting so
1: far. Um, I had no idea it was going where it went. <laughs> <laughs> but that's always the case. I mean, that's my... You know, when I'm asked to do programs these days, I just really don't plan much. Um, I wait until I see the people sitting in front of me. Oh, I'm know, listening
0: again people. your volume. I don't, I don't know why that is happening.
1: Oh, the audio cut out again?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not listening, I don't hear anything coming. No, I'm still. If it's me, let's change it. Could you speak again?
1: Yeah, there. Can no. you hear me now? Yeah. Um, <laughs> where were we? This keeps You're, throwing sorry, us
0: off. Yeah, you, were, you were saying that uh, basically you don't plan for the talks. Right. The
1: and, you know, when I, I mean, actually, it's a, it's a great example of what we were talking about earlier. If I put my attention on the people in front of me, then the right stuff will flow out of me for the presentation. And, you know, people will feel attended to and loved in the process of doing it. And watching that happen, watching that process occur and the wonder of it is really what keeps me teaching these days. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's not about much else at this point. Um,
0: I remember a conference in which uh, from the Himalayan tradition that was given in Minneapolis, I think it was a teacher training program. And I remember, I, I don't remember which specific talk it was, but I remember that there was this person that was so, didn't really say much, and it would really pay attention to what you were saying no matter what it was. And at some point, some, someone else during the talk alluded to him and, and they really did say attention is love. And I really agree with that. And, and I, 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 sh- I should remind myself that more often because it's so true. I definitely feel your attention and I definitely feel your engagement, which leads me to be more engaged and and so on and so forth uh, creating probably an upward spiral in terms of the type of conversations that we will be having
1: you know and this this goes into the spiritual relationships i have with with people that i'm guiding um you know in some instances it allows us a degree of love that is just so wonderful um there's one person in Taiwan, for example, a very, very close student of mine, um, someone who I actually think of as a son. And if I just turn my mind in his direction, I can feel his life from inside his skin. I know how he's doing. Not, not details, I mean, but I, I can tell the general feeling of his life. From inside his being, um, and when we, you know, when we talk over uh, over the computer, which we do about every week, our conversation ends by just sort of trailing off into silence, and we just sit there and look at each other for five minutes, ten minutes, and just feel this sense of uh, communion that is. Really, something, and I think finding that kind of love with people is, is what we're all after, really. Whether we're talking about marriages or families or communities, you know, that's really the most important thing. And you, you hear people who've been through near-death experiences uniformly. To a person, come back. With this conviction that love is the only thing that matters anywhere for any reason. <laughs> you know, the rest of it is completely optional. But love is the one thing that really counts. And I think that's absolutely true.
0: And thinking about thinking about love and and it's never ending increase intensity could we talk about approximations to, to love, I guess, like our, sure. our increasing openness towards it and how <laughs> I, I recently started thinking about it almost as in terms of like the, the more one opens to love, the more happier one is, but the, the, the action of opening oneself to love is one of le- letting go of prior concepts and, understandings and ideas of oneself and the world in which we relate to each other which can be pretty scary i would say in greater degrees maybe not so much so in shorter degrees what are you thoughts
1: about that? I'm, I'm actually going to give you a neuroscientific explanation of this <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, i'm not intending to sort of throw a lot of water on beauty with science <laughs> I think this is one of the beautiful things that science can, can sort of explain, is that um, our, uh, our ideas about what love is and what it should be, our expectations of it, are mental habits, conditionings. And those are maintained in this complex of, um, of structures along the midline of the cortex that we call the default mode network. And that's where all of your habits and conditionings, all the critical voices in your head, all that crap is in the default mode network, which is basically your brain on autopilot when you're not paying specific attention to something. Um, and there's this conversation that goes on constantly between the default mode network and the medial prefrontal cortex when, you're, when you are paying attention. And so when, when you become mindfully aware, the default mode network goes into the background. And this whole system run by the medial prefrontal cortex begins to reorganize what's in the default mode network, albeit not real fast, Um, but it does happen. And, uh, And so I think what we're feeling in those moments when we drop into this expanded sense of openness with somebody, we feel a sense of vulnerability because our habits are suspended our habitual ways of responding even to danger are turned off. And we're just allowing something to arise in our experience de novo. And so often that sense of vulnerability in those moments are something people are conditioned to feel afraid of. But if you, the more you pay attention and the more you keep yourself mindfully aware, the more those things become sources of wonder in your life. You know, Yogananda, the the great uh, yogi from California, uh, talking about his experience of the highest meditation and samadhi, describes it as endless waves of ever new joy. And I took a careful look at that phrase when I was working on this book that I wrote a couple of years ago, Clearing the Path. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, I took a careful look at that phrase because all of a sudden I realized, I mean, this is joyfulness that never becomes familiar. It never becomes the usual thing. It's always got this sense of newness and freshness, innocence. It is the experience of the garden. So it's what's meant by the Garden of Eden metaphor in Christian tradition. That's what the Garden of Eden is. And Yogananda would say in his Bible commentary, he would say that you know the task of yoga and meditation is to bring human beings back to the garden, back to a point where they are not controlled simply by habits, but by this sense of openness to everything at every moment. And you know some spiritual figures even refer to this as being basically a permanent orgasm. And I think that's a really, I actually think this is good language to use because it gets the point across that when the philosophers in India talk about Ananda, about the joy that is characteristic of the highest reality of Brahman, we're not talking about just sort of happy days We're talking about a sort of joy that completely explodes your experience of the world into an eternal present, where there actually is no past and no future. It's always present. And in our habit-bound state of mind, which we live in 99 plus percent of the time, we have only future and past. We don't really taste the present. People give a lot of lip service to the present moment, But the only place you know the present moment is in samadhi. In the highest meditation, that's the only place. And at that point, that's really something. There's a a great yogi who was the last identified master of the Kashmir Shaiva tradition. His name is Lakshman Ju. He left the body in 1995. Um, And he was the people who taught most of the, he was the person who taught most of the Current great scholars and practitioners of that tradition. One, uh, and uh, he gave some, did some interviews on video that are available on YouTube. And there's one of them called The Final Goal of Yoga, where he's talking about this aspect of, of what the final goal is. And, and he actually says, you know, it's, it's basically a permanent orgasm. Uh, a, he says it's a super sexual experience. Um, something that is beyond anything you can do with your body-mind. And and I think that's that's the way to understand what the goal is, is to be that kind of joyful person. Um, And in between where we are now and that goal is this gradient that we climb of gradually becoming more and more joyful, more and more happy. Um, not in a self-satisfied or complacent way, but just in that sense of openness and wonder to things. Um, and in that way, I mean, this is what Christ meant when he talked about becoming like a little child in order to enter the kingdom. Whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom, substitute the word samadhi. Um, and
0: Oh, I, I lost. I lost your volume again.
1: If you if you look at uh, if you look at what Jesus told his disciples, you know, he said, um, "Only as you become like a child, may you enter the kingdom of heaven." And this is what he's referring to: this this gradual growth and cultivation of a sense of mindful awareness that brings with it open heartedness, compassion. Joyfulness, joyful-mindedness. These qualities that the yogis talk about, yogis and Buddhist meditators as well talk about them in exactly the same terms. Maitri or metta in Pali, friendliness, karuna, compassion, mudita, joyful-mindedness, and upeksha or upekka in Pali, um, emotional non-reactivity, emotional stability, groundedness, centeredness focus. So these are all things that that grow in us as we make progress. There are also things you can practice. In the Buddhist tradition, they approach these as practices. I think the one that most people would have some familiarity with is the, the metta meditations that are done by a lot of Buddhist practitioners, of broadcasting the sense of loving kindness out to all beings, starting from yourself. Um, And that's one way of cultivating this attitude. Uh, The phrase, you know, perpetrate acts of random kindness and senseless beauty. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. You know, that's exactly the sort of thing that we're talking about. Um, And the more you, the more you fill your life with that, the more you grow. And it's, I mean, the the basis, the foundation for all of that is cultivating the sense of moment-to-moment mindfulness. So I I don't put, at this late point in my life, I don't put so much emphasis on my sitting meditation time, although that's still important. But I'm much more concerned with, where is my mind during the day? You know, where is my mind as I'm talking to you? And as I talk to you and I watch you how much can I feel your heart in my own? That's what that's what really matters to me.
0: It's sounds very beautiful and and I think that I, I one thing that I love about what we're talking about right now is the potential applicability of everything that you're saying and i i i love that i'm recording this conversation because i feel like i'm going to listen to it in the future again and and what would you say to the idea of this solitary yogi that goes to the cave to find enlightenment uh and 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 where and, and in that person where does it Where do they find this interrelatability, this using the relationship for their spiritual growth? And for, I call it spiritual growth, but it's really expression of love, right? The expression of love and, 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 and growing
1: through this love. You know, I talk about the ability to sense the lives of people I'm connected to at a distance. There are some people I can do this with. The great yogi in the cave has a much greater ability to do this and to affect the world through what they do inside themselves. Every once in a while, Swami Veda and Swami Rama would comment on the way in which those cave yogis affect what goes on in the world and how much over the centuries they have contributed to helping human beings not blow themselves to bits. Um, So that's the work of the yogi in the cave. Through their ability to remain in touch with the whole of being from inside themselves, they also have a great power to impact what happens outside? Because we all live in a single mind field. Mind is a field phenomenon. One of the things I really honor about Daniel Siegel's work at UCLA on neuroscience is that he has based it in relationship. He hasn't just talked about what you know what goes on inside the blob of gray jello inside your skull, as you grow and develop. What he's talking about is how do relationships change even the form of your nervous system as you you grow in the world. And he's begun to shine a light on the way in which mind is not something that's encapsulated within an individual person. That aspect of how we think of our mind is illusory. Um, And meditation is what takes you into those deeper layers of the mind field that go beyond your individual embodied life at every one of the levels that yoga describes. So the the entirety of universes within universes within universes all exist in one mind field called chitta in yoga. And our individual minds are just little waves on the surface of that ocean. And so the task is to sort of get below the wave and to feel more of the currents that flow in in those depths. And those yogis in the caves are the ones who are capable of doing that. And by doing that, they pacify the rest of the world. You know, we make an effort to do that in our tradition by sitting for meditation as we did yesterday during the full moon there are four different times at different places around the world that people sit together during the full moon day in order to create a field, a meditative field of peacefulness to try to contribute something constructive to the way the world is going at the moment, which is, <laughs> we need more. <laughs> um, but that's, that's what they do. It, isn't a, it really isn't a selfish thing that they're doing. Um I'm reminded of the story of Swami Rama's guru, one of these great realized yogis who sat in Samadhi all the time in his cave. And as his disciple, Swamiji's job was to guard the entrance and make sure nobody got in. So one day this, this prince comes along who wants to visit the guru, somehow found out he was there and demands to see him. And Swamiji says no. And they kind of get into a fight about the whole thing and finally end up making enough noise that all of a sudden from inside the cave, the master says, let him come in. So the prince comes in, presents his gifts, sits down and begins the conversation by saying, you know, you sit here in this cave all alone all the time. Don't you ever get lonely? Mm -hmm. And the yogi said, up until a moment ago, I was sitting with my friend Now you have come and I'm lonely. Mm -hmm. Your external presence cuts me off from my internal friend, which is a universe within a universe within a universe, you know. Um, It was his way of saying, you know, it actually hurts that you're sitting there talking to me. and of course the prince didn't get it and they had a brief conversation and then the prince went away but i mean it, i think it's a it gives a sense of the flavor of what they're doing up there in the caves it's not just about learning practices or all of that it's really for those especially who have attained it's about maintaining the world by maintaining this loving mind field
0: That reminds me of, um, there's this book uh, Yogananda wrote, I forget which one it was, but he briefly mentions that one of the things he was doing one day back in the 40s in the middle of his meditation was to alter or implant a thought in Hitler's mind where he would think that invading Russia was a good idea in the winter. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. um what are your thoughts about you know i i love meditation i love yoga philosophy i think it has changed my life and it will continue to do so and i profoundly based a lot uh, based a lot of it's uh, yamas and yamas uh, in, in my p- daily practice, and I found that to be so helpful. And, and there are different traditions, and, and one of the traditions I, I, around which I was born in South America and Ecuador is the shamanistic tradition that uses medicine plants for spiritual purposes ayahuasca ceremonies, peyote ceremonies, uh, uh, psychedelic mushroom ceremonies, uh, etc. And, and some of these substances are now being studied for mental illness, quote unquote. And right. specifically for the use of major depressive disorder or existential distress in the terminally ill cancer patients for substance use disorders. And, and when you talk to a shaman, they would say that they, they really help you get in touch with the, what they would call the great spirit. And then through that experience, you, 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 and through that connection, you, you learn how to act outside of that experience in order to eventually, potentially have that experience on your daily life. And I I just wonder what your thoughts are about that, uh, this whole tradition.
1: Well, these—I th- mean, these things existed in the yoga tradition as well. In the first verse of the fourth part of the Yoga Sutras, uh, Patanjali talks about how you can, you know, you can attain samadhi through um, birth, through uh, herbs, and uh, lists several other things. Hmm. And I'm just curious enough about what it actually says to actually look it up. Of course, there's an app for that. Oh,
0: there is?
1: (laughs) What's the name? Oh, yeah. I have a Yoga Sutras app so I can quickly look things up when I want to. Now I just have to find where I put it. There we go. Birth, yeah, birth, herbs, mantra, and practices of tapas. So birth refers to the impact of karma, you know, to being born with a strong karmic momentum towards spiritual practice, Uh, mantras we know. Tapas is practices of austerity, which... As you understand from reading the book, is really it's not about self-denial. It's about learning to enjoy your life through concentration, and gradually reducing your appetites in that way. And then, and then you have, um, oshadi is the Sanskrit word. And the way that uh, the way that the traditional medicine of India approaches herbs, uh, it's kind of interesting. In India, you have two systems of Ayurveda. You have the traditional ones who are trained in their families, the traditional vaidyas. and then you have the academically trained vaidyas who are trained in academic medical schools. And they tend to take a sort of a westernized perspective on looking at drugs, looking at drugs in terms of active chemical ingredients the way that we would in the West. But the traditional vaidyas have a very different view. And that herb is not just the vehicle for a certain chemical agent. It is a whole relationship of a being that is a plant with the whole rhythm of the universe. So when when a traditional Vaigya goes out to gather herbs to use in their practice, they gather the herbs at a specific time during the year in a particular phase of the moon, according to how the energetics, the subtle aspects of of the herb work, in addition to whatever may be there chemically. And that whole part gets completely left out often when we pull these traditional cultural methodologies into a scientific context. Um, And that's a problem. Um, It's a problem of cultural misappropriation, but it's also a problem of missing the point often. Um, And uh, so I think that's one aspect of the relationship between the traditional practices and what's going on in research on psychedelics these days. Now, I think the research on psychedelics is certainly a good thing. I mean, just the fact that, that the approval of MDMA for uh, depression has come through is just a wonderful contribution uh, for people who have you know those forms of depression that just seem to be refractory to all the other, uh, you know, medicinal kinds of interventions, you know, for those people to be able to feel some relief from that in minutes is just, I mean, I can't imagine how much hope that would give somebody who is, you know, living in that suicidal shadow. Yeah. Um and I think that aspect of it is really important. And I'm glad that the research is being undertaken now under under better controls than it was in the 1960s. <laughs> um, hopefully, people will keep their hands out of uh, you know out of the clinical material.
0: Yeah, it's so exciting. But but I
1: think I think these things are important contributions. Now, in terms of. Um, what they do is, you know, in a way it's similar to what the yogis do when they give somebody Shaktipata, when, or I should say when, a, when Shaktipata flows through a guru into a student, it raises their mind up temporarily. It gives them a glimpse of something so that they know what to shoot for. And then the task is to be able to do it without the, the assist. Uh, and the, of course the problem is too many people hang on to the shortcut. I have one therapy client I've been talking to periodically over the years who just cannot, cannot give up his psychedelic shortcut. Um, And he keeps, we keep having arguments about this. Um, But, uh, you know, for example, in my own life, I took a vow of uh, celibacy in uh, 2007. And, you know, that's a struggle for anybody to do. I mean, that's really hard. And as Swami Veda told me once in earlier in my life, when I somehow expressed the idea that sexual urges become less um, immediate with age, he said, forget that. (laughs) That's going to be with you into your 80s, honey, you better deal with it. Um, And for a long time, I mean, he he talks about how he can't imagine why people settle for a seven-second thrill. So my question has always been, what is the state of mind of a genuinely celibate person that makes ordinary human sexuality seem so small? I struggled for a long time to have a positive relationship with my own sexuality, in general, and also as a gay man. And... Having worked that hard to get to that place, I was not so enthusiastic about giving it up, you know. It's something that I earned very dearly in life. And so for a long time, I asked my gurus for some kind of a a clue. You know, what's the what am I shooting for? What, what should I be looking to, to bring to birth in my personality? So one day in 2013, I was sitting in my cottage at Satakram. and all of a sudden in my meditation i found myself in this uh, space of almost uh, the way i described it was an almost painful feeling of delight a sense of joy that was so strong and so intense that it felt like it would physically burn me up if i stayed there longer than three or four minutes I wrote him about this and I described my feeling and I said in in what I wrote to him it, it felt like an orgasm but no physical stimulation no outward arousal and he wrote back to me he wrote back a nice note and the last line in his note was and I live in that orgasmic state most of the time and I thought is that even possible? I would have burned up. I mean, I could hardly imagine that as a, as a steady state way of being in the world. But it gave, me a, it gave me a glimpse. And now I recognize, for example, in some of these relationships that I'm talking about with uh, some of the students where that love has grown so deep between the two of us, that I can feel their life from inside their skin. You know, these people have really given me their heart. Why would I need to get into their body? It just, that doesn't make any rational sense. Um, and, And so watching that grow in you is the path towards celibacy. Whether you have sex or not. Uh, Celibacy is not about whether you have sex or not, even though everybody wants to make it about that. Um, Having sex in a mindful way is a practice of celibacy. And again, very few people do it that way. It's so habit-bound. There's a a sex researcher named Richard Schnarch. Interesting name. Where that comes from, but Schnarch has done a lot of uh, a lot of work on how couples interact in uh, sexual interaction, and one of the things he discovered is that almost nobody looks their partner in their eyes when they come. Can you? I mean, I can't imagine that. For me, that's a really important part of the experience. I can't imagine anybody not doing that. But the vast majority of people, and I mean like 95%, find that too vulnerable. And they turn away, and they experience everything internally. And they go you know, right into their default mode network for all of their conditionings about what sex is supposed to be. If you roll it the other way, and you roll it into an open-hearted, mindful experience of sexuality, then it starts to grow way beyond the individual person. You know? And that's where people begin to find this link between sexuality and spirituality. And I think frankly, that's what the gift of our sexuality is for. That's its purpose. Um, for so many people who don't live a meditative life, a great sexual experience is the first thing that starts to open their mind towards spirituality. And it's where a lot of people's spiritual seeking begins. So, um, I mean, even in terms of how you relate to people as a physician, not not that you should be in bed with your your patients, (laughs) but the most important thing you give your, your patients as a physician is your attention, you know, is the relationship that you have to offer. And I've had this sense of, grief for a long time for the field of psychiatry because, you know, biological psychiatry has has made the day-to-day work of psychiatry, seeing people five minutes at a time and writing scripts out all the time. And that is so unsatisfying. No one wants to do it anymore. And so that now they're trying to sort of download it onto psychologists. And my profession is seeking to become prescribing physicians. And I just think that's the biggest, biggest mistake the APA has ever made. And that's actually the reason I left the organization. Um, I think it's just beyond stupid uh, to do that because, you know, what we legitimately have to give people is relationship as a healing instrument in therapy in the same way that you have that as a physician. And we get so oversubscribed to physical ways of looking at what works that You know, we don't pay attention to how important the heart of the physician is. It's a little bit like sleep. A few years ago, I got invited to give a presentation on yoga nidra at a sleep conference. So I figured I'd better learn something about sleep science. So I took a course in sleep science. And my God, I had no idea I had no idea that sleep was the best medicine for absolutely everything. Even if you measure the effect sizes compared to the research for all the surgeries and all the medications and everything, nothing beats sleep. Unbelievable. Who knew? You do like it. Everybody should have known. Um, and I think the same thing's true of, of the relationship in, among physicians. And, and, I, and I hope that all of these healing professions pay more attention to that interpersonal field of neuroscience and the way that it impacts our professional work. Because it's so, such a big deal. You know, Chopra tells this really moving story about uh, a woman who came to see him because she had terrible abdominal pain. And he did a physical exam because he's an internal medicine, I think he's an internal medicine doctor. And his conclusion from the findings in the exam was probably had uh, cholecystitis. So she sent, sent the lady. he sent the lady to a general surgeon. They booked her for surgery and did the surgery. And of course, when they opened her abdomen, they discovered cancer everywhere. So they just closed her up and gave her a prognosis of days, actually, five or six days to live. So in the recovery room, she's beginning to wake up and uh, Chopra is there. And he has this sudden intuition to couch his feedback to her in a particular way. And he says, um, he said, it wasn't your gallbladder. That's all he said. Hmm. There was no problem with your gallbladder. And so they parted company and he just sort of assumed that she would pass away quietly in the next few days and that would be that. But she didn't. She shows up in the hospital a month later looking pretty good. So Chopra took her aside and just asked her, you know, how have you been since your surgery? And she said, well, you know, it's really interesting because the day I came in with all that belly pain, I didn't say it, But I was afraid I was full of cancer. And you know, Chopra's interpretation of this is that somehow she sort of managed to reach into the depths of her mind field at a quantum level to create this incredible um, disappearance of her cancer. You know, they did all the the tests over again, there wasn't any cancer in her at all. She she had a total remission of all the different forms of cancer that were there. And you know nobody can explain this sort of thing, except this was in a, a, the story actually comes from a book by this quantum physicist named Amit Goswami called The Quantum Doctor, which is a really, he uses quantum physics as a way to create a theoretical system where allopathic medicine, Ayurveda, homeopathy, and all these other systems can kind of work together rather than fighting with each other all the time because they work at different levels of the minefield. What's the, the this book again? It's called The Quantum Doctor. I, I loved it. It was a neat book. And Goswami is a really cool guy. He uh, is one of the people who appeared in that film, What the Bleep, a few years ago. And he de- devoted his career to trying to popularize ideas about quantum physics in the culture because he realized that you know, these ideas were not disseminating. And I saw this when I started my psychology training in the 1980s, you know why is nobody talking about this stuff? It changes everything about how we think about how the world works. Um, and so Goswami has written a whole series of books about different aspects of this to try to introduce quantum ideas to the general public. And I think it's a real important service, not only to the general public, but also to science because you know, scientists have been just as bloody-minded as anybody else about taking that stuff in. Um, you know, Einstein referred to quantum non-locality as <laughs> spooky action at a distance is something that was just basically a superstition. and he turns out to be totally wrong about that. Um,
0: so interesting. When you, you mentioned all the students the quantum doctor and, and that book and all these fantastic, uh, anecdotal instances of patients or people getting cured immediately for unknown reasons. It, 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 I feel like the, the psychology of a typical physician is to learn as much as they can and try to explain everything that they can through the science that they have and everything else is probably wrong, right? Like it,
1: in- Well, it can wrong. be wrong. Often it's helpful. The point is to not be a fundamentalist about it, I think. You know, this, there's this physician, the guy who used to run the physical medicine clinic at NYU, I'm blocking his name right now, but I mentioned him in the book on the part on dealing with back pain. I mean, he recognized that almost all low back pain is totally psychosomatic. It has absolutely nothing to do with ruptured discs. And subsequently, research has proved him to be correct. Um, And it it changed the whole way we look at pain management uh, now. Um, And, you know, so not letting that become fundamentalistic, I think, is really important. And being open to the fact that there's always something more. You know, medicine is an art, it really is an art. It's not just a technology and the best doctors have always been great relational artists with people and a good part of the healing comes from the relationship and I I hope more of that gets back into medicine um you know I think of the wonderful sense of humanity that Oliver Sacks had about his neurological patients my god and how carefully he listened to them. He must have, they must have felt so loved by him. Um, and uh, I was also thinking about um, this guy, Richard Seltzer, who used to be the head chief of surgery at Yale. He wrote a couple of books in the 1970s, one of which the title was Notes on the Art of Surgery where he talked about his experiences with things that went beyond what medicine could explain and included in these is a story about when the Dalai Lama's physician came in a diagnostic contest with the whole medical machine at Yale and they they took a woman who was going to be diagnosed for some kind of cardiac problem and the you know the allopathic doctors put her through all the you know heart cath and everything else the Tibetan doctor asked for a fresh sample of urine, which he put in a wooden bowl and whisked before he just spent 45 minutes smelling it. Mm. And then he palpated the woman's pulse for an hour. So the Western doctors come back with their diagnosis, ventricular septal defect. The Tibetan doctor says, in the cave where the winds of this woman's vital air blow between two of the walls, there's a hole. Hmm. Same diagnosis. <laughs> Gained mostly by attention and intuition. So I, I, these, these books are really fun. And I think they kind of keep your mind open to the fact that there's always something more. Unfortunately, I have, to, I have to get off here because I've got a pool appointment in 22 minutes, so I better get my got it. butt to One the car.
0: final question before we go. I see that you're dressed in red, and normally I see you dressed in yellow. Does this mean that you are a swami right now?
1: No, not really, but I like the color. Oh, okay. <laughs> and in our, in our tradition, it's an alternative to the official yellow and orange colors of the Vanaprastis and the Sannyasis. Uh, and I look much better in burgundy than I do in either of those others. So,
0: <laughs> I really appreciate your time, Stamaji. It was lovely talking with you, and I, re- I'm just like feeling how much I love talking to you, and just thank you.
1: Look, Christian, we can talk anytime. Just drop me a note. We'll do. All right. Take care of yourself. From chaos to drag-